I invoke you demons, many men buried together, and dead by violence, and dead before your time, and deprived of burial. You who lie here below, dead before your time, and nameless. It is a harrowing appeal to the dead. This curse, one among hundreds, was found in Amathus, Cyprus, carefully deposited in a mass grave. We can infer from the wording of this particular tablet that the grave held the remains of dozens who met a violent end. The tablet, however, is anything but atypical. Hundreds of cursed tablets, prophylactic amulets, and clay poppets used for malevolent aims have been unearthed across the Mediterranean, with 200 of these having been unearthed in Amathus alone, sizable amount for such a small city on the fringes of the Hellenistic and Roman world. According to Pliny the Elder, however, Cyprus was known for its magic. In fact, the discovery of the Amethusian tablets suggests not only the practice of magic, but amazingly, the existence of a professional class of magicians who were regularly solicited for the services. With me today to discuss magic in ancient Cyprus is Professor Drew Wilburn from Oberlin College. Drew's research focuses on the archaeology of ancient magic in the Roman Mediterranean and village life in Greco-Roman Egypt. Drew's book, Magica Materia, the Archaeology of Magic in Egypt, Spain, and Cyprus, explores magic in the objects of daily life from antiquity. He suggests that individuals frequently turn to magic in their daily lives, particularly in times of crisis. Most recently, he had been studying the role that magic plays in architecture, investigating the placement of protective features in houses and other buildings. Drew, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Andreas. It's, uh, it's really great uh, to be here and having a chance to talk with you today. My pleasure. So I just want to start off asking you what sort of drew you to this particular focus uh, with magic in antiquity. Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, um, that goes back to my uh, days as a graduate student uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, and I was kind of interested, not so much in magic, but in uh, just archaeological finds uh, in general. And there's an amazing museum uh, at the University of Michigan, the Kelsey Museum of Archaeology. Um, and that holds thousands of, of artifacts, um, many from uh, excavations that Michigan uh, took part in uh, and that they received as part of their um, concession in Egypt. Uh, and anyway, I, I went upstairs uh, one day with the uh, then uh, registrar, Robin Meadow Woodruff, uh, and asked, you know, do you have anything that might be interesting to look at? Uh, and Robin said, well, I've got this drawer uh, of bones uh, that are all painted with red, like, designs. Uh, and we don't really know what they're doing. Um, so Robin showed me this this drawer, uh, and, and they were these amazing artifacts uh, from Quranus in Egypt. Um, and I kind of set to work uh, investigating them and uh, determined that they were probably the result of a magical uh, rite that had been conducted at Karanis, uh, likely to help livestock. And I thought, this is just, this is just fantastic, right? Uh, to kind of get in touch with the artifacts that people used in their daily lives to have an effect on the world. Um, and that really set me off uh, to look at magic in general, uh, to sort of understand, uh, again, a little bit more uh, the daily lives of, of ancient individuals and their struggles and their challenges uh, and to kind of find voices that we don't often get to hear uh, in antiquity. And how did, it, how did you end up in Cyprus? What was, um, 
It's appeal. Cyprus was a logical next next stepping stone, next place to look. Um, as I think you know, uh, Cyprus is really a crossroads uh, of the Mediterranean, um, connected so closely uh, with both east and west, north and south. It's it's uh, a critical space uh, for travel, transport, and the exchange of ideas. Uh, so, so for me, I thought Cyprus would be a, a really logical place to try and look for uh, ritual practices that um, I hoped uh, at the time uh, that kind of embodied uh, that that transmission of knowledge, uh, that exchange uh, for which Cyprus is is so well known. Uh, so that that was sort of how I ended up um, uh, working on Cyprus uh, and looking for uh, magical material uh, on the island, uh, and that led me necessarily to this giant cache uh, of cursed tablets from Amethyst. Right, and um, a a um, I suppose a colleague of yours, um, not a direct colleague, uh, Daniel Ogden, um, mm-hmm. has written a book called Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts, and he does say that Greek rituals akin to binding magic certainly existed in their own right, but we cannot discount the certain Near Eastern and Egyptian rites that were in a strong position to exercise influence over it. Is this why Amethus is um, at its center? And the reason why I ask that is, I mean, if we consider where it's located, uh, its proximity to Egypt, its vibrant port, it's a bustling port city, and it has a peculiar syncretic of uh, syncretic blend of Greek, Phoenician, and indigenous elements. We also know that there's a significant Eteocypriot corpus suggesting a, an indigenous populace as well. I mean, is this really the perfect crucible for this exchange of, of cultures and ideas and potentially magic. I think I think it is a perfect crucible, but I think that the magic that we're seeing at Amethyst, which is um, you know third century CE, uh, is is a later iteration uh, of that. So we don't really have the earliest examples of uh, cursed tablets from Cyprus. Uh, they're actually coming out of Athens uh, and Salinas uh, on uh, on the island of Sicily, but and that tradition, uh, which starts in the late 6th and early 5th century, uh, then makes its way throughout the Mediterranean. Um, and indeed, it's probably connected again to uh, back to Phoenicia, back to uh, the Levant, um, to Egypt. I, I think we, we have trouble so often picking apart the multitude of crisscrossing exchanges that are going on at any point. Uh, in antiquity, um, where the Mediterranean was was truly a melting pot uh, of lots of different traditions uh, through various processes of exchange. Do you know anything about its religious orientation uh, at the time? From what I've read, it's uh, very much, I mean, it's not, we couldn't quite call it a, a Greek city, although Aphrodite was certainly worshipped there. I know there's evidence of Hathor, Isis, Serapis, uh, so many different gods and goddesses there. Um, is, are you able to speak to that? Yes, I mean, I certainly can. I mean, I think, you know, we, we certainly see uh, a very strong Egyptian tradition uh, also there, as, you, as you've already mentioned. Um, there's a, probably a sanctuary to Bess. Uh, there's a large statue of Bess uh, now in the Istanbul Museum, which is likely from uh, Amethyst. Um, so we, we definitely have uh, an intense amount of uh, interaction between 
Cyprus and the Near East and Egypt, uh, really starting uh, to my mind uh, in the sixth century, we see it in tomb, sixth century BCE. So by the time we get to the third century CE, I think we've had uh, lots of contacts. Uh, the Hellenistic period brings the Ptolemies to the island, um, and a you know, reiteration or reinvigoration of uh, Egyptian contacts. And, and again, that's, that's continuing through the early first century religiously. Um, of course, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about uh, Paul's uh, journey to the island. So we're getting the influx of Christianity, again, from the East. Uh, so by the time we get to the period in which these curse tablets are deposited, uh, the third century or so, we've had um, you know, centuries uh, of uh, intermingling religious practices. You mentioned, of course, the Temple of Aphrodite, um, but we also have these other temples uh, to Hathor, to, to Bess, um, that are all kind of functioning at the same time um, in, the, in the city of Amethyst. Has your work ever brought you in, into contact with any curse tablets or magical markings that predate the, the, the Roman period? I think we do have some texts in the Cypriot syllabary that we don't necessarily know much about. Um, I think more than anything, I think probably the, the one of the options that you suggested that we just haven't necessarily found it. It doesn't mean it's not there, but I think probably there are uh, magical traditions, ritual traditions uh, that are existing on Cyprus before the Roman period. One of the difficulties, um, which I'm sure you you know from uh, archaeological study in general is uh, sometimes it's just hard to identify these things in the archaeological record um, uh, in terms of knowing what you're looking at, if if you know what I mean. Um, so these the curse tablets we can identify because they're inscribed and we can read the text uh, quite uh, well, not quite easily, but we can read the text. Um, but for some other uh, artifacts, uh, it's it's very difficult. Um, without textual references uh, to definitively say uh, that a that a certain object had a magical function in antiquity. Uh, so I'm going to circle back and start from the beginning, which is uh, try to get a, wrap my head around what distinguishes magic from, let's say, religion. Um, and we know, for example, that people solicited oracles for their services, but I'm not sure that we would necessarily classify that within magic. So how do we avoid conflating the two? Well, I think that's a very complicated problem, Andreas, um, uh, in many ways. Uh, I, I should say, too, that um, at Oberlin College, uh, we have a, a great series of lectures each year called the Martin Classical Lectures, where we bring in a major scholar uh, to speak. Uh, and this year's lecture was Esther Eidenau uh, from the University of Bristol, uh, who came and spoke about uh, the she came and spoke about the idea of magical thinking. Uh, and uh, her her lectures were very interesting. Um, she certainly made me think about a lot of how we kind of categorize magic and how we conceptualize uh, magic. So I, I wanted to sort of mention that. She came uh, and helped me uh, as I'm thinking about these these things as well. Uh, the real problem that we run into is that I think there's there's not an easy dividing line uh, between magic and religion. Uh, 
so much of these topics is really dependent on where a person stands, right? In other words, those are internal conceptual ideas that individuals uh, sort of divide certain ritual acts into, well, that one's magic and that one's religion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and other people may have, may have very different ideas uh, of whether a particular ritual is magic or religious. Um, oftentimes, our concepts of magic uh, depend on if something is viewed as normative, right, as, as acceptable, as legitimate. Um, magic often falls into that non-normative, non-acceptable, not legitimate category. Uh, religion is a positive uh, term. In, in that answer, uh, I guess the other, the other thing that we have to think about is so often uh, religion and magic are closely interconnected. Uh, there's a significant amount of exchange uh, between um, religious practices and magical practices, borrowings, if you will, uh, between the two. Um, so if there are things that we can uh, definitively refer to as magic, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's a rather roundabout answer I'm giving you. No, no, no. It's, I think, I think I'm, um, I'm understanding to a certain degree when you think of religion and let's say prayer, because I mean, one of the, it appears magic is, is generally a private exercise. And I know there's a class of practitioners that we're going to talk about, which might contradict exactly what I just said. Um, but, um, uh, and I know, for example, that in Rome, um, in infamously, there was anti-magic legis legislation. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know that this wasn't something that was uh, celebrated, but it does seem that at least in Cyprus, was this tacitly tolerated? I think that's a, that's a really great question. Uh, you mentioned um, that in Rome, uh, in, in the city of Rome, uh, and in Roman law, we have laws against magic. Uh, preventing people from performing magic, usually harmful magic, but sometimes magic directed against the state. We assume that these laws are kind of similar or in effect in other places, but we don't really know. Uh, we also don't necessarily know um, whether uh, things like the curses that we're going to be looking at uh, would have been viewed as uh, illegal acts or not. Um, we, we think they probably were, uh, certainly, in, again, in, in the center. Uh, but it, it's a complicated question, Andreas. I mean, you, you're, I think you're, so many of these, these issues are, are hard, to, hard to kind of pin. Uh, this is definitely the case, uh, or this is definitely not the case. Uh, and it's rather a, a challenge, um, because there's so many moments when when we're looking at a particular example of uh, practice, um, it, it seems to break the barriers down um, mm -hmm. that, that, we're, that we're trying to establish. So going back to your, to your question, uh, if I can circle back to your question about um, whether these, these rights are um, prohibited in Cyprus or not, I, I think the answer is, sadly, we don't know. We have no legal uh, documents from Cyprus uh, that would um, suggest that they're illegal. Uh, what we do have uh, in the tablets is one of the tablets, the lead tablets, uh, curses the governor of Cyprus, Theodorus at the time, 
that's almost certainly legal, illegal, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know which one you're talking about. Right. We'll talk about that one. In a right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but whether the actual practice of using a curse uh, is illegal or not is is kind of an open question. It really appears that um, when we talk about prayer, prayer like magic can be very uh, private. But it seems that when someone prays, they're supplicating, they're appealing to. Is it fair to say when someone's practicing magic, they are attempting to manipulate and control? Uh, is that a fair? Is that fair to say? I think that's a that has been one of sort of markers or hallmarks that people have used uh, to differentiate magic and religion. Um, they see magic as compulsive uh, and pl- prayer as an as an uh, as a request. Um, I think again, personally, uh, there we end up uh, in a in a question of what the viewer thinks, right? Um, it is a subjective. It's, it's a it's, thank you. It's a subjective uh, idea, right? Because you can certainly ask a divinity nicely uh, for something, um, or uh, perhaps you're you're a bit more forceful um, uh, in your in your request. Uh, so it's it's again a subjective question, but I think um, that is a I find the, the question of private versus public a bit more useful, um, whether the goal of an act uh, is intended for a private or a very personal gain, uh, or whether it's uh, perhaps more collective. Again, all these categories, you know, uh, all these concepts run us into some trouble. Um, there's a lot of, lot of gray areas uh, in them. Pliny the Elder, he actually refers to Cyprus in particular. He calls it a recent branch of magic that's practiced in Cyprus. And my Latin is awful. Uh, but he, he, he and I'm, I'm going to avoid ecclesiastical Latin here. I think I'm going to try the you know classical Latin. Uh, magicus factio, is that what he... That's, that's good. It's <laughs> close enough, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Good enough, for, good enough for our work today. Yeah. <laughs> that... that word in particular really stood out right and i think it's really important i think historians archaeologists uh, alike would use that to justify uh, the presence of rather would it suggest a presence of practitioners like a class of of magicians in cyprus mm-hmm. so um, my question is can you speak to plenty of the elders reference and what how that has been interpreted so uh, you're, you're absolutely right to to take a look at plenty there um Pliny's, Pliny's statement is is pretty clear. He says that there's a branch of magic, or you said the Latin, a factio, a school, a uh, kind of type of magic, perhaps. Um, again, we get into uh, issues of translation uh, of the Latin here. Um, it is it is a little cle- unclear, even to me, uh, still at this point, how distinct uh, Pliny's factio um, for Cyprus, how his how distinct his specific magical school on Cyprus is from the school that he talks about or the type that he talks about previously, uh, which is that of the Jews. Um, I've gone back and forth on this a lot, uh, in fact, in my own thinking, uh, because he mentions, uh, I can I can just throw the whole quote at you, right? Uh, there's another branch of magic uh, derived from Moses, Yanes, Lotapes, and the Jews, but living many thousands of years after Zoroaster, so much more recent is the branch in Cyprus. Uh, and that's basically 
regrettably all he says uh, in that in that text. So it's a little unclear whether he's differentiating the Cypriot branch or whether he's locating uh, the Jewish branch uh, on Cyprus. Uh, certainly, um, we have a, uh, what we may think of as a dis- even now, right, a distinct uh, kind of Jewish magic, um, which uh, my colleague uh, Gideon Bohack has uh, written extensively about. Um, uh, and that may be what he's talking about on Cyprus. Uh, what we can say without a doubt uh, is that certainly Pliny is locating magic on the island of Cyprus. He's saying that Cyprus is an important space that he knows of for magical practice. Now, you mentioned that in that full quote, talks about Jewish magic. Does that go far to explain the the reference of a magician in the Acts of the Apostles? Um, So for for those listening, we know that St. Paul travels through Cyprus, comes across the court of proconsul Sergius Paulus, and I'm not sure how to interpret this. Is this a magician whose name is Elemas, also known, also referred to as Bar Jesus? Does that go far in explaining why this magician just happens to be a Jewish magician in the court of uh, Sergius Paulus? I think I think it does a lot to help us understand that passage. It's a very intriguing passage, uh, Andreas, and you're right to point it out. Um, Paul arrives on Cyprus. Uh, he travels around, he's preaching uh, the word of Jesus, and he runs into this individual who's identified as a magician. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, he strikes that individual, Elimus or Bar-Jesus, blind uh, as, as part of the story, uh, which, which I find to be really intriguing. And it, and it gets us back at that question that you just asked about magic and religion right? What is Paul doing? He's able to have this, what one may think of as a, almost a malicious effect uh, against, right? right? Um, that, that he's able to strike someone else blind, right? So what is Paul doing? Is Paul the magician in this context as well? <laughs> right, yeah. He's, he's, of course, practicing a miracle because he's, he's working through the power of God. Uh, but he is diametrically opposed to this this figure who's a magician who is uh, doing various things. We're never really told uh, why uh, Bar Jesus is is a magician uh, or a sorcerer. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating text, and I think you're right to sort of locate uh, that tradition of magic again on Cyprus through this this textual instance. There have been a number of magical markings that have been excavated in Cyprus and outside of Amathus, including a very famous uh, palindromic amulet. Um, In other words, it's a magical amulet that is read the same way forwards as it is backwards. There was also a very infamous curse tablet uh, excavated in, I want to say, Bafos, which... um, has a uh, it's sort of a love spell that has a sensational inscription may your penis hurt when you make love so a lot of a lot of interesting stuff happening in cyprus but what i found particularly interesting is that many of these finds they date to uh the sixth and seventh century ce where christianity was already firmly rooted on the island um 
And so I find that very fascinating because you would think that with the Christianization of the island, one would expect these pagan rituals would have disappeared altogether. But these kind of demonstrate that this isn't so. I mean, we have references to other Sonic deities and uh, Egyptian gods still, even at this time. Is this something you ever uh, you came across? And I don't know how you sort of um, were able to reconcile the two, the presence of Christianity and the persistence of this magic. That is a that is a great question, Andreas. Uh, but I think I think really the question we have to ask is uh, not what tools are people using and whether we should classify them as Christian or uh, let's say traditional, right? Uh, right. But but what are they trying to do? Are they in crisis? And what uh, what are they attempting to solve uh, using magic? I think we have to think about the fact that people in general, uh, use the tools at hand. Uh, and when we're running into uh, things that may look, let's say, traditional, I don't like the term pagan myself because it uh, it implies that uh, paganism like Christianity is a kind of a monolithic uh, monolithic religion and really paganism is, is just sort of local traditions, um, right, that, that, that predate Christianity, right? Again, um, uh, but... In, in both of these instances that you're talking about, uh, we have people who are who are dealing with problems, right? This uh, palindromic amulet uh, found at Paphos is a fascinating piece. Uh, we have this um, palindrome, right, which seems to uh, perhaps have a, a Christian or, or Jewish reference, uh, right? Um, but also it has, right, it refers to uh, Ray the sun god uh, and to the Jewish god, which could be... Uh, Jewish or Christian uh, at this point. Um, and then on the reverse of the amulet, uh, we have a number of figures uh, shown. Uh, Osiris, uh, probably, who's mummified, right? Um, a snaky figure, uh, some other, uh, perhaps an illustration of Harpocrates, uh, who's the son uh, of Osiris and, and Isis. Um, so we have this, this wonderful object, which has, uh, again, a real conglomeration uh, of ritual practices uh, drawn, as we see again and again, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. from the Near East, from the Levant, and from Egypt. Um, You know, so uh, it's, it's, if anything, it's it's fitting into the traditions that we see in Cyprus earlier. Um, And what it's not fitting into is our conceptualization of what Christians should be doing at this time. Uh, And I think we have to, to give some credit to those the Christians on Cyprus who maybe are just uh, trying to use whatever methods they can to, to solve their problems if whether that's uh, whether that's a kind of a pagan tradition or not um, they seem to preserve some degree of belief uh, in these traditions uh, and whatever practitioners might be there are drawing on those deep-rooted traditions as well as contemporary Christianity uh, to solve to solve their problems, it's a it's a fascinating thing, and it, and we we see exactly the same thing going on in Egypt uh, at this this same time period in the fifth, fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. We have uh, many many uh, Coptic spells that are being written out, and Coptic, of course, is the 
sort of it's a later uh, script uh, of Egyptian uh, that's using Greek characters um, or Greek letters, letter forms. Uh, and it's it's the typical language of the Coptic church, the Coptic Christian church. Um, and and these many of these texts, which include both uh, instructional texts, that is, um, spell books for, for doing magic, as well as um, sort of the remains of rituals. Many of them combine uh, what we would certainly identify as Christian, right? Invocations to Jesus, to Mary, to God, uh, with uh, invocations to traditional Egyptian gods. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of my personal favorites uh, is a p- piece of papyrus uh, that invokes the god Hor or Horus, uh, as well as Jesus, uh, to keep scorpions out of the house. Um, and this is just uh, part and parcel of how local religious traditions seem to be functioning at this time, uh, that we have a real, again, melting pot of traditions that we want to distinguish between pagan and Christian, uh, but the local individuals who are employing these traditions seem to see them both as valid uh, and use them in tandem uh, with one another. Mm-hmm. I, I find it fascinating that, for lack of a better word, I find it fascinating how, quote unquote, pagan traditions persisted that far along. Uh, I, I would have imagined that uh, a lot of it would have been forcefully stamped out by, by the seventh century uh, or by the eighth century, and and yet they persisted. Now, was was magic? Was it always malignant? Was the magic always binding, um, cursing, or were there other more benign um, magical incantations? There were certainly benign magical. Uh, traditions that are alive and well uh, in in antiquity. We have amulets against all sorts of things uh, where people are trying to solve their health problems. We have to, one of the critical things I think we don't always give enough credit to uh, is the progress that has been made in the past 150, 200 years in our understanding of the body and how we fix medical problems. Uh, and in antiquity, when they don't have germ theory and they don't really understand very much at all about the inner workings of the body, uh, magic is, is a great solution uh, for this. Um, so there are many instances, uh, I think, in antiquity, in Cyprus and elsewhere in the Mediterranean, uh, where we can see people using uh, using spells to, to help themselves, right? You, you may have a spell to... Uh, help you win favor, right? Um, or to, you know, to be, to be popular, right? Uh, uh, to be successful in your business uh, ventures uh, or to fix an ailment, your knee hurts uh, when you work outside too much. Um, so there's an amulet uh, to help yeah. you do that. So I think that, that all these things are, um, are very common, very commonplace. Um, and then I think you even touch upon um, love spells that came out of Egypt. And you suggest that there may have been a very real Cypriot connection to some of these love spells that were discovered, um, excavated in Egypt, that perhaps even suggests uh, a, a Cypriot template. 
uh, that's that perhaps could be the case. What we what we know in antiquity, um, or what we think we know, I should always say, yeah. uh, these things are always under under discussion and revision, of course. Yeah. Um, but we we think that uh, that at times uh, spells would have like spell bits, little f- fragments of spells uh, would have circulated throughout the Mediterranean uh, and would have been picked up to be used uh, in in multiple contexts. So the the spell in particular that you're referring to uh, is from one of the cursed tablets uh, from uh, from Amethyst. It's one of the tablets that was written on selenite, uh, which is a translucent crystallized form of gypsum. And on this spell, we have an invocation uh, to various chthonic or underworld deities. And the goal of the spell is to uh, silence uh, an opponent, presumably in a law case. Well, this same spell pops up, uh, or the same invocation, right? The same um, speech, the same text uh, pops up in a spell in, in a manual that is a recipe book for magic uh, in Egypt. And in this new context, it's being used as a love spell. Uh, so it's a fascinating um, transmission uh, of magical knowledge. It, it becomes a question about whether we can sort of draw a direct line between Amethyst and this, this spell from Egypt or not. Um, it is possible, and this is one thing that I, I think we have to consider as a possibility that uh, perhaps uh, this spell text uh, came into Egypt and because it came from Cyprus it uh, and because Cyprus is so closely associated with Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, it seemed appropriate that this spell text, this invocation uh, should be used for love magic. Uh, and that's where, where, where I think we, we can say, uh, probably people perhaps understood um, where ritual traditions were coming from. Uh, and when they went to incorporate them into new spells, uh, they might, uh, they might kind of reference that uh, so that those, those spells become important to love because, because Cyprus is associated with, with love magic. I find it a very appealing uh, explanation, you know, knowing what we know about Cyprus being uh, the birthplace of Aphrodite, as you said. That when I came across that, I, I said, "Oh, that's you know, that seems about right." Um, you you also say so. You, you let's circle back to something you mentioned, um, and we're going to kind of dive into the Amethystian curse tablets again. A lot of these curses emerge in times of crisis, um, and you mentioned at the start uh, there was one that was targeted towards Theodorus, and who was the um, hegemon, um, for lack of a better word, of Cyprus at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was cursed by a man named Alexandros. What what were these times of crisis? I mean, and you don't necessarily have to just speak about Cyprus. If you can, and if you can recall about the, the different curse tablets, uh, and I know not all have been published, but uh, what what's the common um, theme uh, in these in these curse tablets? What what are the the issues that arise in second and third century Cyprus that necessitates them to create these curse tablets? I think that's a, that's a great question, Andreas. And again, we're at a place, I think, where we wish the tablets told us a little bit more mm-hmm. about people's lives. So often uh, the tablets are really the result of a, a personal crisis 
Um, someone has a conflict with a neighbor. Someone, um, we know that one of the tablets, uh, there's a reference to cloth. Another tablet has a reference to livestock, we think. Nowadays, we might think these are pretty small-time crises. Uh, but presumably for the individuals that, that suffered these things, they, they were major problems, right? They, we can think in our own lives if, you know, if someone loses their job, if someone has a, a theft of, from their house, uh, those, aren't, those aren't small things for the individual. And I think um, many of the Chris tablets are reflecting uh, personal crises. Uh, at the same time, um, in the third century uh, CE, as in much of the Roman Empire, there were economic crises going on. There was a lot of um, economic problems that uh, people would have suffered uh, on Cyprus as, as elsewhere. Uh, so perhaps some of these tablets are kind of the result of, of economic troubles um, that people are, people are feeling uh, in, their, in their lives. Can we say that this, these curses uh, give them a sort of legal leverage over their uh, intended targets? Oh, what a wonderful question that is. Um, again, uh, we, we can only um, make assessments from the tablets themselves uh, and sort of make, uh, make guesses at why people are doing these, these things. Um, most of the tablets seem to be related to court cases, as you mentioned. And the real question is, why are people writing uh, these tablets? What are they getting out of it? Um, on the one hand, uh, it seems, as my colleague Esther Eidnow has has suggested uh, that a lot of individuals are trying to manage risk in their lives. Uh, they know they're in a court court battle with someone. They think that they're right. Um, they are worried, though, as anyone would be in a legal situation. Uh, and they want to find uh, the best ways to both succeed uh, and to feel confident uh, going into, into the trial. Uh, so a curse um, occupies that space, right? They can uh, they can write a curse against their opponent, uh, and ideally, uh, they will believe that they're going to do better uh, in in the trial. Now, the question you have to ask is, what's the real effect of this? Like, what you know, this is does this have any impact on people's lives or not? Um, certainly, I think we can say they they may feel more confident going into that trial. Uh, they may feel like they've they've got it in the bag now because they've they've cursed their opponent. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the practitioner who's responsible for writing out the curse for them now has uh, a degree of knowledge uh, that may be used in the community uh, through channels like gossip and other uh, clandestine uh, means, right, to kind of let the victim know that they've been cursed. So we also have uh, kind of psychological games, as it, if you will, on the other side, where individuals may hear that they've been cursed uh, and their performance in a case may suffer. Right. Uh, so why they're doing it and getting back to your, your question, I think they're doing it largely because they want to kind of provide themselves with a bit of an insurance policy uh, to uh, up their uh, up their own side and in their legal conflict. Um, what the real effect is, it's a little bit harder to say, but I think, you know, we can talk about uh, kind of a feeling of, of confidence on the one hand and, and possibly in the community uh, a situation where the, the opponent uh, is going to not do quite as well, perhaps, again, psychologically speaking.
Yeah, there's this. Um, I was a fan uh, years ago. HBO put out this uh, this show called Rome. Uh, only lasted lamentably for two seasons, but in those two seasons, you know, we see the rise of of Caesar and uh, eventually his fall. But there's a there's an episode in the second season where a character named Servilia she's she's uh, cursing uh, Julius Caesar, and I encourage anyone just to look this up. Just look up rome hbo curse scene it's very appealing just just to watch and you can see her in the scene she's furiously uh, scribbling on a lead scroll invoking the furies invoking nemesis taiki and uh, she's alone Uh, she has this this uh what presumably looks like a lead tablet and some sort of uh, stylus and she's making these markings uh, as she's reciting this curse and, you know, we also, we got to step back, I feel like, because there's so many things that are involved in, in making a curse tablet, if I'm not mistaken. You've got the composition of the text, manufacturing of the tablet, its inscription, even its deposition. So how accurate would you call that scene? And if you don't know the scene that I'm referring to, just how private or in this, in Cyprus's case, how public would manufacturing of a curse tablet have to be? Well, Andreas, I know the scene very, very well, um, largely because I show it uh, in my class every time I teach. I teach a course called Magic and Mystery Cults in the Ancient World. Uh, and when we talk about Roman cursing, I, I show that scene. Uh, so I'm, I'm very well familiar with it. I think um, it's a great scene. Uh, it has some problems, of course. Uh, there are a couple of allowances that we have to make. Uh, I think it's I think it's. It is relatively accurate. Um, in the scene, Servilia is shown uh, inscribing the curse. Um, I think we do know during this time period uh, that there were professionals uh, who may have been uh, more common uh, as people to, to inscribe a curse. Um, but we have plenty of instances, uh, particularly at the site of Bath in England, where we know individuals were inscribing their own curse tablets. Um, she is shown uh, in the scene, as you said, uh, inscribing it on lead uh, with, a, uh, with, a, with a stylus. Um, that's not inaccurate. Uh, she's got some drawings on the tablet. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not... Not inaccurate, but drawings come a little bit later, uh, more more often. Um, uh, what what they get right uh, in the scene is is I think they they show her rolling the tablet up, which is pretty common, um, and uh, in, invoking a spell as she writes the tablet. So so when we look at that scene, we have to always remember um, that a ritual right consists of uh, an act that a person does while they're manipulating an object. Uh, And the scene, I think, does a very good job of showing us that juxtaposition between her invocation to divinities, um, uh, some of whom we know from from actual cursed tablets, and the fact that she's inscribing at the same time and and manipulating using gesture uh, to uh, kind of enact her curse on this piece of lead almost, right? To transfer what, what she's imagining will happen to Caesar to this, this tablet. And then as you rightly note, at the close of the scene, uh, she has another individual 
uh, take the tablet and stick it in between the bricks uh, of a building. And here, too, we're on pretty good ground, um, archaeologically speaking, uh, because we know that tablets were deposited uh, in a variety of places, um, many of which were conduits to the underworld, right? places where people believe the spirits of the dead could be reached, such as graves. Uh, but other tablets are sometimes deposited in places where they were believed to have an effect. All right, So you put it where you want it to work. Um, so in this case, we get tablets sometimes placed in people's houses, um, or uh, we have literary references to that, or, um, or uh, in chariot races, um, sometimes like at the starting gates. Romans loved chariot racing, uh, and they also loved cursing uh, horses and charioteers uh, in, the, in the third and fourth centuries. Uh, so a lot of times we get the cursed tablets actually put uh, in, the, in the circus, in the arenas for chariot racing. So a lot of it I think is good. And like I said, show it in my class all the time. I think it's yeah. a great, great scene. But in Cyprus, though, they wouldn't, this wouldn't have been necessarily a private practice. They would have uh, approached someone. Like, when you think about Pliny's reference to that class of practitioners, it, paint a picture for me. Like, humor me a little bit here. Is this, is this someone who has a, a shop that's open <laughs> and, you know, they're selling these blank uh, uh, templates and, you know, okay, this, come get your curses done, uh, done up here. Like, how, how does that kind of uh, work out? That's a that's a really great question. Um, we don't know precisely how public uh, or how out in the open a practitioner of magic would have been. Uh, there's a lot of questions uh, in, in some ways wrapped up in what you're asking, Andreas. And if I can roll us back a little bit and talk some about what we do know from the tablets themselves, I think that'll get us get us started. So the tablets from Amethyst uh, definitely were produced by professionals. We know this because uh, of the published examples, almost all of them use the same spell text, right? So someone had a magical spell book and they were copying the text for the curse out of that spell book onto a lead tablet. We also know from the tablets, uh, both the lead ones and the ones written on selenite, that uh, translucent form of gypsum, that the tablets were being written by multiple individuals. So we don't have just a single individual who's like lurking at the edge of the village, right? Yeah. Doing this. Yeah. But we have multiple people who are active. Now, maybe they're active over successively, uh, or maybe they're active at the same time. Well, Hard how, to do, say. How, do we know, how do we know this? The handwriting. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We can identify the handwriting. You know, it's, it's clear. I mean, you know, we have different hands, we think, right? I mean, these are all, um, you know, uh, assessment, right? Uh, but we have different hands uh, apparent on, on lead tablets and on the selenite ones. Um, we don't know if the same people are writing the selenite and the lead because the materials are so different. Um, but you can sort of look at, you know, the way that people draw or write out different letters, letter forms and know that different people are writing them. So we have we have good examples uh, from from Amethyst that multiple people are at work. Uh, they're using at least I think I I think we know of at least three different maybe four different um, set texts that is like uh, model texts in their recipe book. Um, 
to, to write these spells. And they're, they're, as we've talked about, they're producing a lot of these things. You know, we have upwards of 230 um, examples from, from Cyprus. So it's, it's a big business there. Um, the question of where, how, um, precisely what their social status is, is a little bit harder to untangle. Um, some of my more recent work has, has been on looking at kind of what's the connection that we see between magical production, right? That is, you know, the production of these cursed tablets, uh, and temples, um, and, uh, sort of traditional ritual spaces. The answer there is again, not completely clear. I feel like that's what I keep saying over and over again. Uh, but we have some evidence from other sites in the Mediterranean, um, not, not from Amethyst, regrettably, uh, where there's the production of these curses is associated with, uh, with temples, perhaps uh, with priests in the temples, or perhaps with people who are hanging around uh, the temples, um, kind of uh, selling their specializations. So um, to answer your question, uh, if I can circle back to it, um, I think we, we we know that we know that we have professionals. We know that people would have uh, known about the professionals. that would have gone uh, to them uh, to help them solve the problems of their lives. By defining what these suspension holes were, we'll understand. I think we'll have a better understanding of what these binding spells were exactly, because some of these tablets they had suspension holds. In other words, uh, they were meant to be displayed, which. What crazy. <laughs> so where where were they? Where were they displayed? To whom were they being displayed to? Yep, absolutely. So so we know this is a it's a complicated um archaeological context. Um because because it was not found uh in the modern period and it wasn't it was found in eighteen ninety. Mm-hmm. Um and it wasn't found by archaeologists excavating uh the site. Rather what happened is in sometime before eighteen ninety one uh, a group of local individuals, uh, probably near Agios Tikonos, ancient Amethyst, um, were digging a shaft, probably for a well, uh, and they found this shaft, and in it were, were these, these tablets. Uh, they were under a collection of, of bones, um, and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but the tablets, according to uh, the the people who are, who are reporting this, um, they found the tablets, uh, that the selenite tablets, right, the stone ones, uh, were in the walls of the shaft. Uh, and the lead ones sometimes were attached, they were rolled up, but then attached to the walls of the shaft with nails. Uh, and the uh, one of the late, early, you know, um, people who publish it describes it as if it's uh, bristling with curses on the way down to Hades, right? Um, it's a bit of a paraphrase. Yeah. Um, but um, so we know that probably uh, whoever was was making these spells uh, descended the shaft uh, and put them in place. Um, who are they for? It's a great question. Um, we're probably 30, 40 feet underground. Uh, according to the local testimony. Um, so most residents of Amethyst are not going to be visiting visiting this location. Uh, you know. Saturday night. 
Right, right, exactly, exactly. I, what I love to do is climb down a 40-foot shaft and, and look at what's there. Um, you know, so uh, for the most part, it seems these are these are made for underworld divinities who they're addressing and for the dead um, who are also likely to encounter them. Um, so when we talk about display, we have to we have to remember, too, you know, we, we make a nice, tidy distinction between the dead and the living in our world, but in antiquity, uh, that that division was a little bit more permeable uh, and the dead could be uh, really a, a part of people's lives in a way that we have trouble. Perhaps I mean, some of us at least uh, have trouble really conceptualizing today. The, the quote that I read at the start of, of this recording, it says, I invoke you demons, many men buried together and dead by violence and dead before your time and deprived of burial. Um, are we to infer then that this is possibly based on the, the wording of this particular curse tablet, that it was deposited in a mass burial of soldiers, plague, what have you, um, who are unknown and forgotten? And uh, we know the importance of burial rites in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, is there a particular appeal to, to soliciting those dead, even though we haven't, we didn't find them, you know, we didn't exactly, like you said, we didn't exactly find them recently, found them in the late 19th century. But is that what we can infer? Um, That's a really great question, because that, we run into a problem in this instance, because the the reported archaeological context suggests that the bones, so let me backtrack. The reported archaeological context tells us that when the local Cypriot individuals were in the process of discovering these tablets, they found, going in order from the top down, right, they found some uh, cut stones, rubble, and then a mass of human bones, some of which had earrings, and then below that were the tablets. The problem archaeologically is that necessarily the bones had to be deposited after the tablets, right? Because, um, because it would have been impossible for the individuals, the practitioners, to basically crawl through the bones, right, uh, to get to the tablets, to, to mount them on the walls. So we have a, it, it seems to me, in my reading, that the practitioners use this shaft and then some later event uh, caused this group of, of dead individuals, perhaps a plague or war, uh, to be buried in this place. What the tablets are telling us, though, is that they are invoking spirits of the dead who the ancients thought of as restless. And these dead individuals, these are ghosts that for various reasons could not find peace in the afterlife. The restless dead were those who were unburied. That's a very important category uh, of restless dead. Um, They hadn't received proper burial burial rites, uh, so they were angry about that. They weren't honored as dead individuals. Other restless dead included uh, young men or women who died before their time, uh, particularly men or women who were not able to marry. Uh, and who were not able to have children, uh, which was believed to be one of the goals of life. So the tablets um, are explicit in invoking classes of of restless dead who would have been angry um, 
and who would have been hanging around. Uh, again, it, it's very complicated because the archaeological evidence doesn't necessarily indicate that that these tablets are being buried in a, in a mass grave, but rather um, that they're just invoking the dead. The mass grave happened later. Okay. I, I wish it were different. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, just, I wasn't expecting that. I really wasn't expecting that. It would be so much easier if uh, if the archaeological evidence didn't contradict the texts, uh, <laughs> yeah. but but unluckily it does. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't match. Uh, as okay. So, with that being said, there is still um, an appeal to that whether one came before the other. This type of magic, they're called they call it binding spells. So, what exactly um, can you expect to to get out of a binding spell and why are binding spells so associated with the dead? That's a great question. Um, so binding spells, um, as we understand them, are, um, are spells intended to incapacitate or otherwise prevent a victim from doing something. Uh, most typically in antiquity, what we run into are, um, are lead tablets that have been inscribed with the names of individuals um, so I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, we, these, these binding spells first appear on the island of Sicily and in Athens, and they're often just the names of individuals written on a lead tablet and then rolled up and deposited somewhere. As time goes by, or even in some early instances, uh, the tablets make reference to underworld divinities or to the dead, asking for their help to bind or prevent a victim from doing something. By the time we get to the third century, when the Amethyst tablets are being deposited, um, the spells that are intended to bind an individual are intensely complicated uh, and wildly robust, if you will. Um, the spells are calling upon a variety of divinities, traditional uh, Greek and Roman gods uh, that are associated with the underworld, uh, as well as divinities uh, from other cultures, uh, Osiris, uh, Ray uh, from Egypt. They also have lots of uh, what we refer to as magical words interspersed in the text. Um, you know, nowadays, our most common magical word is abracadabra, which is of ancient origin, actually dates from the second century CE. Um, but they have all these uh, magical magical words, which we don't understand. They just sound like gobbledygook or gibberish to us. Yeah. Uh, but they were believed to either act as names uh, for divinities, like secret names, uh, or were viewed as words of power um, that would cause uh, a magical act to come to fruition. Um, so the binding spells um, are, are being used, like I said, to uh, typically to, to prevent um, someone from taking an action. Later on, we do get certain spells that are intended to punish or harm, hurt an individual. Um, but the goal is often to, to prevent them from doing something. Um, at the same time, we have a tradition that seems to be related uh, of ritual figurines, um, that is, small poppets or dolls. You mentioned those earlier. We don't have these on Cyprus, 
but we have them from elsewhere. And they are um, figurines sometimes made of clay, sometimes made of lead, um, where an individual is shown uh, often with their hands bound behind their back, um, sometimes on their knees. So they're, they're often little figurines. They're, they're roughly humanoid uh, in shape. And the appearance, again, is to suggest that the victim of the spell um, is, is like a captive. Uh, they're like a prisoner. Um, and again, they're, they're not supposed to be able to, to do something uh, that would, would harm or otherwise would, would be a problem for the commissioner of the spell. Um, what's interesting about the ritual figurines is that we have an early reference uh, in Plato, um, the philosopher, uh, that people, according to Plato, people see these little figurines uh, at various places and it makes them afraid, right? So we know um, that in uh, classical Greece, at least, um, this tradition is going on, uh, that people are using these these figurines for the same purpose, to, to bind an enemy or a, an, uh, to bind a, a person that they're having a conflict with uh, and prevent them from doing doing something. Why Amathus? Why do we have 200, 230, you said, of these types of tablets? Do we have any idea as to, as to its significance? Um, or is it just, you know, one of many city kingdoms that, uh, well, they weren't, when these were found, it wasn't a city kingdom at, at that time, but... Is it inevitable that we'll probably find uh, a lot more of these elsewhere on Cyprus? Or was there something in particular about that city? I think, I, I hope we find more. Um, <laughs> you know, they're fascinating objects. And as I said before, they give us this insight into individuals' lives that yeah. so hard to, to get. Um, I, but um, I, don't, I don't know that Amethyst uh, is special. Um, I think it's a happenstance of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, we have curses, you know, so we have 200 from, from Amethyst, uh, more than 200. Um, the, the use of selenite, the use of this stone is, is quite unusual. Um, that appears to be a, a local tradition that's different, uh, from elsewhere. Cause we don't have curses written on that, that stone in other locations. Um, but we do have, and we don't have the number that we have at Amethyst uh, anywhere else. We have other caches of uh, curses. We have quite a few from Caesarea that are in the process of being published. Um, I think close to 80. Uh, We have something like uh, 50 uh, found at a burial space uh, in Rome. Um, We have um, 12 or so uh, from a well in the Athenian Agora. We have quite a few from uh, North Africa. Um, so there are places where we have sort of groups of tablets that all seem to be created by local individuals who are kind of co- what I think of as collectives of individuals, perhaps, who are, are working to supply these to the local community. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily unusual or distinctive it just happens to be that we have a lot of them from Cyprus. Mm-hmm. We know that in in ancient Cyprus and a lot of these temples, uh, a lot of ex votos were deposited in order to thank a god for 
healing, right? And let's say, and often they were they were produced in in clay replicas, maybe a foot, mm-hmm. maybe a hand. I, I I know you're familiar with all these. What you may not be familiar with is that this is a tradition that, to a certain degree, still exists within the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. Um, in in many Orthodox churches, you can see representations of feet uh, or hands or eyes strung up near icons uh, in uh, in the church, which is which was brought at some point by someone who had prayed to that particular saint or or to the church and has been healed and they brought a, rep- a representation of that ailment to the church in order to thank the saint so you know stuff like that I'm always I, I always find continuity incredibly fascinating we're the same people fundamentally from 2000 years ago and anytime I get to see the clear evidence of continuity I'm just like I'm, I'm struck by it I'm like you know when I explain this to my wife I tell her that it's not like for me when I like going to these ancient sites it's not it's not the stone that I find amazing it's more of who was here who walked this this mm-hmm. path that I'm on uh, who sat down in this home and from a hard day at work and drank a nice cool cup of water and what did they talk about that's that's what I find so amazing. That's what I find so interesting about history. Um, and so when I see continuity, like I'm just, I, I am naturally drawn to it. Now, I, I share those, those same joys, if you will, of, of visiting places, you know, to think both about what people experienced, what their life stories were that are, mm-hmm. that are lost to us. But, you know, there were people, right? You know, they, they, they had dreams. They had desires. Yeah. Uh, and seeing how, not that they're necessarily a line of continuity, mm-hmm. but that that in many ways, they're certainly tapping into the same fears, same concerns that people had in antiquity. Uh, you know, that, that people don't, people change, of course, but they don't change that much, right? We all, we many of the same yeah. anxieties and concerns about health, well-being, about our families, right? About belief that that somebody's out to get me because maybe because I did something maybe because I didn't uh, you know and all these all these are are just beliefs that, that we we share uh, what I tell my students one, one of the things I really enjoy about studying antiquity is the fact that it is far enough away from us uh, and so foreign that oftentimes it allows us to look at our own society in a different way right because you imagine, how would they think that was right? But you also can see yourself in 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 the person who's sitting having a glass of water, right? Yeah. So it serves both roles. It's it's a it's a it's a moment where you connect, where you can see the continuity, and you can also note the discontinuity uh, with your own your own world, and it helps you think about both both aspects in a in a real and meaningful way. Online, I noticed that you are studying, you're currently studying how magic plays in architecture and you're investigating the placement of protective features in houses and other buildings. Um, never did I ever consider that. Can you, before we uh, sign off, can you just tell me about your um, your research now? Absolutely, absolutely. My research now is really interested in, um, it's really grounded, I would say, in the family, as it were, uh, because the house is essentially... Uh, the domestic space, right? The the architectural space that encloses uh, the family for the most part, for 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 the ancients, right? That's where 
children are born, children are reared. That's where you retreat to after uh, the troubles of the day. Uh, but that space was also a space where danger could enter. Um, there are innumerable threats uh, that would have faced uh, an ancient individual um, from sickness to ghosts, which we've already been talking about, uh, to intruders, uh, to any any variety of things that, that could harm uh, your family. And, and of course, uh, many of the things that would happen to a family were, were unexplained in antiquity, right? Why, why, for example, uh, might a child die without uh, an apparent cause or why uh, would a woman die in childbirth? Um, many of those uh, things, which we understand medically now were, were blamed on external threats. And my interest uh, in this project has been both to kind of identify what people thought those threats were while also trying to see how they use the architecture of the home uh, to protect and enclose the family, um, to block out intruders, whether they be uh, real human beings or vermin, such as scorpions or snakes, uh, or more ethereal, such as ghosts or demonic spirits, uh, all of which um, could enter a home through doors and windows, right? <laughs> uh, so, so that's that's sort of where that that project is now. Um, looking at, as I said, both the the range of threats that people felt needed to be protected against, uh, and the magical means uh, that people would use uh, to protect against those threats. And those included all sorts of things: um, inscriptions that may have been placed on door frames. Um, mosaic uh, floors uh, that would have been used in the house or at the entryway, um, things that would have been placed uh, on the, again, on the, the lintels or the, the frames of the doors. Um, many, many various uh, means that people could use to protect their home, protect their family. So uh, where um, have you been investigating? Is this, is this primarily, say, in the Italian Peninsula? Is this across the Mediterranean, Egypt, uh, Levantine? Um, where pretty, much, pretty much across the Mediterranean. Um, it's, uh, a lot of the work has been Pomp Pompeii, of course, has, has yeah. good preservation. Um, so it gives me a lot, a lot of good stuff to look at. Uh, but I've also been uh, looking in Egypt, uh, some in Spain. Uh, there's a lot of material from, again, the Levant. Uh, I've got to find some some sites on Cyprus to return to uh, to go and to go and work there. Such a great place to 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 be. Um, so I'm hoping I can find some locations there that'll provide me with some new evidence uh, to work on. Absolutely, any excuse, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, it's why it's why I became an archaeologist. Yeah. Not just the love of the material, but also the love of uh, the people and places I get to visit and interact with. I'm incredibly grateful. This is fun recording. Yeah. So, um, again, thank you so much, Drew. Uh, really appreciated everything, and I appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great uh, rest of the week. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, take care. Talk to you later.